We have finished the book of Acts, and uh, today we're going to dive into a new book that I believe is going to be uh, very exciting and challenging because it's God's Word, and it's the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Malachi, and it's a very easy book to find. And the reason it's very easy to find is because it's the last book in the Old Testament. So uh, you don't have to uh, worry about finding it. Just turn to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, and turn back one book, and you will find the book of Malachi. It was written in about 400, uh, 400 years before Christ. And uh, the book of Malachi brings down the curtain on the Old Testament. And as the curtain comes down, the voice of the Lord rings out. It's four chapters, a total of 55 verses. And of the 55 verses, 47 of these verses are spoken by God directly. And that is a higher percentage than any other book in the Bible. God's voice penetrates and resounds through this book before us. And uh, the interesting thing about the book of Malachi is it's the only prophetic book uh, that ends his prophecy with a warning. If you read all of the other prophetic books, they all end in a note of hope. But in Malachi, the Old Testament closes with a warning because it is setting the stage for the blessing and the redemptive work of Christ Jesus. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, I think my batteries are low. These batteries. And we have ignition and liftoff. Thank you, Brad. So as I was saying, this is uh, 47 of the 55 verses uh, in this book are spoken by God directly. That is higher than any other uh, book in the uh, Bible. And it sets the stage for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to give you a little bit of background to this book before we dive in, it's been 100 years since the exiles have been released from Persia, where they were taken into exile, and uh, under the prophets of Zechariah and Haggai, they began to encourage the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and in particular, the temple and the walls, and uh, Zechariah and Haggai had encouraged the people uh, in this work, and the people had responded. The temple was rebuilt, and the walls were restored. Yet, one of the greatest dangers in our Christian life is not so much failure, because we can learn so much from failure. Failure can uh, get our attention like nothing else. It can cause us to seek the Lord it can cause us to look at our character defects. It can cause us to fail forward. And we can learn a lot from failure, but success has inherent dangers because when success comes, success can bring pride. And uh, after the temple was rebuilt and the walls restored, uh, this is exactly what happened to the people of Israel. They began to spiritually kick back. And as they did, uh, really their cutting edge was lost, and they began to lose their fire and their passion. 
And uh, one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Malachi is, is that uh, the passion for God was not basically just um, like falling off a cliff or driving a car off a bridge. It just happened suddenly. It was a gradual thing that nobody really noticed. And at the end, it was like the uh, spiritual lethargy and the lack of passion for God became the new normal. And nobody really recognized uh, the condition that they were in. And uh, when you look around today... Uh, there are a lot of Christians that are living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and they simply don't realize the peril of their condition. And uh, it's just a slow, steady decline of a drift away from the things of God and the passion of God. And pretty soon, people begin to talk the talk and use all of the words of the Christian language, but in fact, their lives are far from a passion and a zeal for the living God. This is what's happening in the book of Malachi. Uh, they had lost their edge, and uh, they weren't out there committing big, blatant sins, but simply a spiritual mediocrity had crept into them. And so the Lord sent Malachi to speak to his people People concerning the lukewarm state of their hearts. And Malachi, the name means my messenger. And he was the last of the writing prophets, but he wrote nothing about himself. We have no biblical information about his ancestry, his call, or even his personal life. And uh, I would just like to say that the most important thing about preaching the word of God is not so much the messenger, but the message that they bring. I don't really care if anybody remembers anything about me. What I do care is that they remember what was preached out of the Word of God and the message that came from the Word of God. And so Malachi deals with some very pertinent issues in this small book. He talks about why they have poor crops and a faltering economy. Think about that for a while. Most people equate prosperity with the blessing of God. If you meet somebody that's being prospered, they will say, the Lord is blessing me. However, the Lord was trying to get their attention by putting a stop on their crops and their economy. And it's interesting that God would touch their checkbook or their pocketbook to actually get the attention to focus back on their relationship with him and the condition of their heart. He talked about intermarriage with people who are unbelievers. And he rebuked them for giving their sons and their daughters and them themselves to the pagan people around them and causing their children and themselves to walk away from the Lord. He says a lot to the priests, to the Levites, about defiling their priesthood and that they didn't have God's heart for ministering to his people. He talked about the, he's going to talk about oppressing the poor and basically a lack of support for the work of God, or as in this context, for the temple. And then lastly, a general disdain for the things of God, or what we would say their Christian life. It was a very low time spiritually for Judah, or for Israel, and they needed to hear the word of God. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the first five verses this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you will speak to our hearts today, and I pray, Lord God, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and that we would have hearts that are not dull, but, Lord, are uh, open and receptive to your word and to what the Holy Spirit would say to us today. I pray that you'll help us in Jesus' name, amen. So Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's interesting to me that 
in chapter 1, verse 1, it opens up with the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. Do you know that for every pastor, for everyone that is a teacher or a preacher of God's word, you feel a great burden. You feel a great weight to bring the word of the Lord to his people. Today, opinions abound. Cultural relevancy seems to be the in word in pulpits today. Well, that's not what I'm about, and I don't believe that that's what any pastor or preacher should be about. The burden that I carry is the burden of the Word of God. And so at Calvary Chapel, it's our desire to simply teach the Bible simply. And that's why we're in the book of Malachi. And if the Lord should tarry, and I'm here 10 years later, and I'm still doing this, you'll find me in another book. And the reason is, is because it is the Word of the Lord to His people. And so we don't teach from the Word, we teach the Word. And there's a big difference between the two concepts and philosophies of ministry. And I can identify with the burden of the Word of the Lord. Because as I have taught through the Bible for the last 20 years at Calvary Chapel, Kelowna, I see there's a lot of things in God's Word that I would never probably choose to preach on or teach on if I were cherry-picking my subjects. But God doesn't cherry-pick subjects. He talks about all of life. And in the Word of God, all of life is discussed. And so it's very important that if we believe that the Bible is God's Word, that we should pay attention to all of God's Word and see what it has to say to all of our lives. And so if you're out there in uh, Facebook land, uh, say a hearty amen to your family or to your living room or to your furniture or to the cat or the dog or whoever might be around because that is what is important in life. So Malachi called his message a burden. The prophets were men who personally felt the burden of the Lord as God gave them insight into the hearts of the people and the problems of society. It wasn't easy for Malachi to strip off the veneer of the piety of the priests and expose their hypocrisy or to repeat to the people the complaints they were secretly voicing against the Lord and confront them with the condition of their heart. But that is what God called Malachi to do. Now, if you have different versions than the New King James Version, uh, some, people use, uh, some versions use the word oracle, prophecy, or message for the word burden. But it is clear that what God had called Malachi to do is to give the word of the Lord to Judah or to Israel. And so Malachi opens with this statement, Israel, Israel, hear a word directly from the Lord. It's coming through me, but I want you to know that the author is God. So hear the word of the Lord from God through me. And that's why it's very important that as much as possible, the messenger just gets out of the way and the message is brought in clarity so that people can interact with the living God. So why am I preaching the word to you today? Because I want you to interact with God and his word. And whatever you hear today... And whatever it is that strikes your heart, that you would remove the messenger from the equation. Don't get offended at me. Don't look at me. But listen to what the Spirit is saying to you through his word. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joint and marrow. And I love this part. And God's word is a discerner of the thought and intent of the heart. I might not know what's going on in a person's mind or heart, 
but God does. And God's word can discern our, the very thoughts and intents of a person's heart. Now, that's going to a depth and a level that no human counselor can go to. But the Holy Spirit can go to that depth because God is your creator and he knows you and his word will be able to sift and to discern the very thoughts and intents of your heart. And when you receive God's word by faith, you will find that it's a living word and that it will bring hope and it will have the power to bring change into your life from the inside out. I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in countless other lives, that wherever God's word is received and believed and acted on with simple obedience and faith, it becomes a great power and agent of change in people's lives. And that's why it's important for me to kind of get out of the way and let God's word speak. The second thing that you might notice is that it is the word of the Lord, and Lord is all high case, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And interestingly, if you read through the book of Malachi in the 55 verses, 51 times the word Lord, all in capital letters, is mentioned in this book. And when we talk about uh, capital case letters, L-O-R-D, it is referring to God Almighty. It is referring to the I am that I am in Exodus chapter 3. It is speaking about God Almighty. And that is his name. And so we should pay attention to the word Lord in this book because it is mentioned 51 times in 55 verses. This is God Almighty speaking to his people through the prophet Malachi. We're going to see in this book that his name in chapter 1, verse 14, is to be feared. In uh, chapter 2, verse 2, we are to give glory to his name. In chapter 2, verse 5, we are to be reverent before his name. In chapter 3, verse 16, we are to meditate upon his name. And in chapter 4, verse 2, we are to fear his name. And just speaking about the name of the Lord, remember in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the Lord says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In Acts 4.12, Peter says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they may be saved. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, the apostle Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. It is a holy name. It is a high name. And for us who have been in the world for any amount of time, we realize that there is no other name that is blasphemed and taken in vain like the name of Jesus Christ. You don't hear the name of Muhammad blasphemed. You don't hear the name of Buddha. You don't hear any other religious god that is blasphemed, but you hear Jesus blasphemed all the time. Why, I ask you? Because it is the true name. It is the name that is above every other name. It is the holy name of God. And God's name is always dragged through the mud by Satan. And the reason why I believe no other name is blasphemed or uh, vulgarized or abused is because there's no power in those names. There's no reality in that name. Satan makes sure that the name of Jesus is degraded and blasphemed. 
And so just pay attention to the word Lord because you're going to see it all throughout the book of Malachi. So look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But look at the people's response. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? The first sin that Malachi named was the people's lack of love for God. It's interesting that when you read the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, the first sin that Jesus mentioned to the first church mentioned, the, book, uh, the church that is in Ephesus, he says that you have departed from your first love. The Lord says, I have loved you. Now, Malachi is going to bring a lot of specific correction to the people of Israel, but before God corrected them, he assured them that he loved them. And knowing the love of God for you personally is really the foundation for responding to God and obeying God. Because if you don't know that God loves you, then why would you bother responding to somebody that you're not sure has your highest good and highest interests at stake? The people said to God, yet you say, in what way have you loved me? This is the first question that the people are going to ask out of seven questions that are going to be listed in the book of Malachi. These questions reveal their hearts that they are doubting, that they are discouraged, that they are lethargic, and that they are rebellious. The first question we just read, they're going to ask God, in what way have you loved us? And then they're going to ask later, in what way have we despised your name? And then thirdly, in what way have we defiled you? And fourthly, in what way have we wearied him? And fifthly, in what way shall we return to him? And sixthly, in what way, Lord, have we robbed you? And lastly, in what way have we spoken against you? Seven questions are going to be listed for us in the book of Malachi. And the Lord is going to answer this first question of how he has loved them by giving them a comparative lesson between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are first mentioned and found in the book of Genesis, way back in Genesis 25. They are the sons of Rebekah and Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. And Isaac um, took a bride named Rebekah, and they had twins. And these twins were called Esau and Jacob. Esau came out first. He was the eldest, and Jacob came out clutching Esau's heel, and therefore he was the younger. Now we know that the special blessing in the Old Testament was always given to the eldest son. The eldest son was reserved for the special blessings that came down through his father, and he was given special ways and special means to continue on the family line. Now, we know that Jacob deceived his brother Esau and that he, in cahoots with his mother, went and deceived his father Isaac and basically got the elder son blessing instead of Esau. Now, this is a story that is well known to his Jewish readers. Everybody knew the story of Jacob and Esau. So Malachi here is referring his Jewish readers to a well-known part of their religious history. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? At the end of verse 2, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, 
and the people whom against, uh, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Isn't this an interesting statement? Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, talking about the election of Israel as God's people. Now, a lot of people read this verse, and I have to confess, when I read this verse, first time that I came to it as a young Christian, uh, and even later, I was always perplexed by this statement. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Doesn't sound like God. God hates people indiscriminately? What is that all about? Well, let's take the statement that the Lord makes through Malachi and let's work it through together this morning. He says, Jacob, I've loved, but Esau, I've hated. Jake, I love, Ed, I'm not so crazy about. Now, God asked Israel to find assurance in his election or his choice of them. He wants Israel to understand that they were chosen and remained his chosen and favored people, even though they didn't deserve it. And when the people of Israel compared themselves to their neighbors, the Edomites, or the descendants of Esau, because from Esau came the Edomites and the nation of Edom, they saw that God had chosen to preserve Israel, and yet Edom went into everlasting destruction. Now, understanding our election can bring a wonderful assurance of God's love. You go, Dale, do you believe in election? I sure do. Why? Because it's taught in the Bible. That's why. Do you believe in free will? I sure do. Why? Because it's taught in the Bible. Well, what is it? I don't know what it is. When I get to heaven, I'll figure it out. And I'm not going to waste a bunch of time trying to figure out how the election of God and the free will of man works together, except that when I find it in the Bible, I'm going to preach it as I find it in the Bible, and I'm going to let God worry about the details. And if you believe that, say, huh? But here, understanding that God chose us should not bring a question of asking whether God is fair. If you're a child of God, it should bring a wonderful assurance of how much God loves you. It means that God chose us before we existed. And that's in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 1. That God chose us before we existed and that the reasons for his choosing and loving us are based solely in him and not in us. I don't understand it. I just exult in it that God loved me that much that before I ever existed, he chose me to know me and to save me. And knowing God chose me gives me a sense of boldness and confidence in my walk with him. Understanding election, if such a thing could be said, gives assurance of love. And think about this. If God chose us before we ever chose him, how about looking at it since the finished work of Jesus, we now know how that love was demonstrated for us. The Bible says that God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The statement that God loved Jacob but hated Esau has troubled a lot of people. As I said, Paul quoted in Romans 9, verses 10 to 13, proving God's electing grace for both Israel and for Gentiles who had trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. But I would like to just examine the verb hate 
because it's not hate as in we use in the English vernacular or as we understand in our English language. The word there must not be defined as a positive expression of the wrath of God. Really what Malachi and what God is saying through uh, Malachi was that his love for Jacob, thus Israel, because Israel descended from Jacob's 12 sons, was so great that in comparison, his actions towards Esau seemed like hatred. That's the sense of the word. Now, it's used in the New Testament where Jesus said, your love for me should be so great that your father, your mothers, and your brothers and sisters, it says, unless you love me more than them, and the word there is hate. Unless you hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters, you cannot be my disciples. And so what Jesus is saying is, your love for me should be so supreme that in comparison, every other love should be less or as the English word is translated, hate. Does that make sense to you? So as an illustration, Jacob loved Rachel so much that his relationship to Leah seemed like hatred. It was a less love. And Jesus called his disciples to hate their own family, and he was using the word as in a less love in a similar way. Our love for Christ may occasionally move us to do things that appear like hatred to those whom we love. I remember when I became a follower and believer of Jesus Christ. I was 17 years old, and my brothers said, you don't love us anymore. If you loved us, you'd come out and do the things that you used to do. My friends said the same thing. Dale, you're not our friend anymore because you don't run with us and you don't do the things that you used to do with us. And I go, no, it's not that I don't love you anymore. As a matter of fact, I love you more than I've ever loved you, but I love Jesus more. And because I love him, I want to walk with him and obey the things that he tells me to do. Now, to my unchristian friends, it seemed to them that I hated them. Not so. It's just that I love Jesus more. Warren Worsby quoted a great Bible teacher by the name of Arnold Gablian, a gifted Hebrew Christian leader of a generation ago, and someone said, I have a serious problem with Malachi 1.3, where God says, Esau I've hated. And the person to whom Dr. Gablian was talking to replied, I have a greater problem with Malachi 1.2, where God says, Jacob I have loved. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once was accosted by a woman who said to him, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madame. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. It's even harder for me to understand the fact that he loves me and chose me. Now, I know a lot of things about myself that you don't know. And there's a lot of things that I don't want you to know about me. Not because I am blatantly walking around doing stupid stuff, but just the fact that I have things in my heart and mind and attitudes that if they were played out on a screen, I would be very embarrassed for you to see them and to know that these things run through my mind. Yet the one who knows me best loves me the most. And that is what Malachi is expressing through the Lord, that God loved Jacob not because Jacob was so deserving. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a supplanter. He was a heel catcher. And if you look at Jacob's life, he was a scoundrel. 
and he ripped off people. He ripped off his brother, he ripped off his uncle, and yet it was through that person that the nation of Israel was born. And God is saying, you're just like your forefather, Jacob. Yet I love you with an everlasting love. And in compared to Esau, look at how much I love you and love him less. Now, does that make sense to you? I hope that it does. Look at verses 4 and 5. Even though Edom has said, we've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus the, uh, says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. And they shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, you need to have a little historical context to understand these verses. Edom hated Israel, even though they were neighboring countries. And when Israel was destroyed by Babylon, Edom was on the side cheering for Babylon. And they even took up a spear and soared against Israel and participated and cheered on the destruction of Israel, and therefore the Lord judged the Edomites. And so here we have it, and uh, we have the story that Edom also was attacked and destroyed as a nation. But in their hearts, they're saying, well, we've been impoverished. But even though we have been desolate, we're going to return and rebuild our cities and our nation. But God says, wait a minute, you may build, but I will overthrow you again. And you shall perpetually be known as a territory of wickedness for what you have done against my people Israel, and the Lord's going to have indignation against you forever. And then he says to his people in verse 5, your eyes have seen this. And you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, God is saying, look at how good I have been to undeserving Jacob and Israel. And look at how I have judged the nation Edom around you. Compare how good God has been to you even beyond the borders of Israel, and how I have dealt with those who have oppressed you. So what should we say to all of this? Some get really confused about this doctrine of being elect or not being elect. They get all uppity up about God's fairness. Listen, do you want fairness? Do you want God to be fair? Because if God was really being fair, we'd all be in hell. But because God is not fair, while we were still sinners, he sent his only begotten son to uh, come to earth as a humble servant and to die on a cross for you and I and shed his blood for our redemption that we might come into his family and enjoy the riches of his grace. Now, is that fair? That's not fair. Because if God was fair, he didn't have to send his son to die for us. He could have left us in our miserable estate and left us to die in our sin. Because sin deserves punishment. And punishment will bring eternal separation in hell from God forever. But God said, that's not going to do. I'm going to take my only son and send him to earth to die for you. So aren't you glad that God is not fair? I'm glad he's not fair because he has saved me and brought me into his family. Some say, well, listen, Dale, I don't believe in Jesus, therefore I must not be chosen. 
Well, if you want to believe that, that's fine. But then you can't blame God at all for not choosing you because you refuse to choose him. I think the easiest way to state this truth is the way Pastor Chuck uh, Smith did it uh, in his day. And I quote him, one day Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Pretty simple, straightforward. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, I don't have any problem with that because he chose me. Well, you say it's not fair for God to choose because I don't know if he chose me. And I say, well, you can find out. All you have to do is ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. Turn your life over to him, and you will discover that he chose you. Well, you say, well, maybe I don't want to. Well, maybe then he didn't choose that, choose you then. But you can't blame him. Well, you say, well, that isn't fair. What if God didn't choose me? Well, have you accepted Jesus Christ? If so, then he chose you. If you haven't accepted him, do it, and you'll find out that you were chosen. And if you don't want to accept Jesus Christ, why do you even care if you're chosen or not? Now, I'd like to leave you with four thoughts about God's wisdom uh, in this world uh, uh, pertaining to what we've talked about today. The first thing is, bad things may happen to good people in this world, but this world is not the end. If God has chosen you, and you're his child, you might be asking, well, why in the world are the things happening to me that are happening? Well, I don't know all the reasons why. It might be because you're stupid, and you brought it on yourself. Nobody likes to hear it, but it happens. It might be that you're ignorant and you don't know the word of God and you don't understand the principles that God has made for provision. Or it might be that you realize that God is perfecting you and growing you and doing things in your life. And I'm not being trite or, or, or insultive. I hope I, you haven't been insulted. All I'm saying is... I don't know the answer to that. But this is what I do know, that my hope is not in this world. This world is not the end for any believer in Jesus Christ. Because as Christians, we have an eternal perspective. The apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. Now you go, well, that's easy for Paul to write. Hey, have you read about Paul's life? Read the book of 2 Corinthians. He knew what suffering and trouble and affliction was all about. And he had a perspective that everything in this life is not the end. This is temporary. And we have an eternal home waiting for us. Number two, bad things do happen to good people, but God uses bad things for an ultimate and lasting good. The Bible says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, notice what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things that happen to us are good. That's preposterous. What it is saying is, is that we have a redemptive God who even in the midst of bad things can take those things, all things, and work for the good of those who love him. Isaiah puts it this way, he can give beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. When Joseph, in the book of Genesis, innocent of wrongdoing, finally came through wrongful imprisonment 
rejection from his brothers, sold into slavery, he was able to see God's hand and good plan in it all. He says, you thought you sent me here, but God sent me here for good. Thirdly, bad things happen to good people, but those bad things can even equip us for deeper and more effective ministry. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Praise be to the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Those with battle scars can help those going through the battles. Fourth and lastly, always remember that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one, suffered more than any of us could imagine. The just for the unjust, the truly innocent for the guilty. We follow in his footsteps. The Bible says if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, 20 to 23. Jesus is no stranger to our pain. And despite the sinful nature of the people in this world, God still loves us. A lot of times, we don't voice the question, but it's often in our heart. God says, I love you. And you say, in what way have you loved me? Have you looked around at my life, God? In what way have you loved me? Well, I can think of a few ways. I can think that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that despite the sinful nature that we had, being citizens of this world, God loved us and sent his son to die for us, to take the penalty of our sin, and that if we would receive Jesus Christ as our savior, that we would be forgiven and promised an eternal home in heaven. How did God love you? He loved you by sending his son, Jesus. Now, if you measure love in driving a fancy car, and making lots of money and owning great and vast amounts of things or property and you equate that with God's love, well, then maybe you don't feel loved at all. But if you look at what your real need is, and that is salvation, you will realize how deeply you are loved. And you will see that the real need in a person's life are not things, but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, what would it profit a man? What would it profit you if you were to gain the whole world? Now, that's a lot. The whole world, that's a lot. That's more than Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. That's more than any sheik living in Saudi Arabia. The whole world, and you had it all, but you lost your soul in the process. Jesus said, what would it profit you? What would you gain? What would it be worth to you one second into eternity? It would be worth absolutely nothing. How has God loved us? He's loved us by giving his son, forgiving us, and bringing us into his family. Worship team, come on up. So when the devil 
comes to knock at your door and it says, how have you loved us? When that, when that door bell rings, instead of answering the door with depression or discouragement or doubt, why don't you just stand around and look at the world and your neighbors and your colleagues and the society that we're living in today that are looking for all the answers in all the wrong places and have become enslaved to their desires while they crave freedom. We are blessed people. God has a purpose and a plan for each and every one of us. He's forgiven us. He has liberated you. He has blessed you. Don't hang your head and say, how has God loved us? Instead, stand on your feet and look around at all of the things that God has blessed you with as God compared Jacob to Esau. As he said to Israel, look at how I have blessed you in comparison to Esau. And say, Lord, thank you that I'm a part of your family. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your great love. Thank you that you've loved us and that we don't have to wonder how you've loved us. We have your word. It tells us in black and white of how, Lord God, you demonstrated your love towards us. I pray that people would find great, great hope in that today. That you would measure God's love not by what the world says, not by what your friends say, but what this book says about God and how he's loved you. In Jesus' name, amen.